A draft was one of my favourite games. It was fairly intense. It was always kind of tit for tat. You were backwards and forwards. It was, you, you know, you didn't know who was going to win, but there was always this point where there was a game changer. When you managed to get your counter onto the back row of your opponent's board, you would say with total gratification. What would you say? Crown me. Crown me. King me, granddad. It's quite funny when you're a five-year-old saying that to a 70-year-old. King me. Uh, it's as absurd as it seems. Um, now, I, I say that to begin with to say that actually we never really grow out of that. Every single one of us has this lust for power in us. And in effect, king me is what we say in all of life. We want to be people who are the masters of our own destiny. We want to rule our own lives. We want to live the way we want to live. Uh, John Piper, in a recent book, um, I think it's Money, Sex, and Power, it's called, uh, talks about this lust for power and defines it like this. He says, deep down, every one of us wants the capacity, this is power, to get what we want or do what we want whenever we want. That's what self-rule really is all about. That's when we say in all of life, not just in board games, king me. King me is what we say when we boast about how much money we have. King me is what we say when we talk about how sacrificial we've been. King me is what the young couple say when they've sex outside of marriage. King me is what the husband says when he passively ignores the discipleship of his wife and kids in preference for flicking through BBC Sport or whatever else. King me is what the woman says when she surreptitiously gossips another into disrepute because deep down she wants to be the center of attention. King me is what the disciples say when they argue about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, even though Jesus has just said to them, I'm about to go to Jerusalem and die. The lust for power is in every one of us. And I think one of the reasons God has given us 1 Kings 1 to 2 is to expose it. There's a lot of text in here. We're obviously not going to cover everything, but it's it's at the basic level, this is an account, at the very start of an account of kings in the Bible, of how God is going to show his faithfulness to his covenant to keep a king from David's line on the throne by his sovereignty, despite the maneuverings of various people who will contend for that throne. But what makes that contention so important for us is that behind it, there is this lust for power that we see in ourselves. And this isn't teaching us just history, of course. It's teaching us theology. What do we see in here? Well, in terms of structure, this is an important thing when you look at Old Testament passages. Look for clues to understand it. Look for structure to see how it hangs together. And look at contrast to, see, to help us understand what God is actually saying to us in the passage. So in terms of structure in here, Solomon is obviously the main character and around him are Various people, including King David and Bathsheba, but then there's these four other people who each in their own way want to get what they want, do what they want, or whatever they want, whenever they want. All the while completely ignoring not only the one who is the true, uh, the true king to be crowned, but the one who is king over all, the Lord himself. And as David crowns Solomon as king, he calls on, we're called to recognize that behind this contention and these other men is a lust for power. Um, 
what I want to do is frame it in this way. Uh, we have two main points in here, king me and king him. Point one, king me. Point two, king him. So let's look with, at uh, chapter one together. King, the king, uh, currently on the throne is King David, and he is dying. David has reigned for years. He was a living legend, really. Remember, he was described as being the man after God's own heart. He's the one who fought off lions to protect his sheep when he was a shepherd, and fought off Goliath to protect the Lord's renown, and so became king. He wasn't perfect. No one is. Uh, but he owned his sin and repented before God with deep sorrow, even over his adultery and murder. For all those reasons, he's held in high regard. He was a recipient of God's grace and loved God for that. But in 1 Kings 1, he is a shadow of his, his former self, isn't he? He's old and cold. The mighty warrior is chittering under the covers. He's so cold, in fact, that somebody has this bright idea to employ a woman to be his human hot water bottle. And that, I know, raises more questions than it answers. Thankfully, I don't have enough time to explore that tonight, uh, so we can press on. No, I mean, I don't know. If it was just to keep him warm, why the Miss Israel contest? Uh, you know, why did she have to be beautiful? I don't, I don't really understand. And anyway, in any case, the author sees fit to clarify that David had no sexual relations with her. Actually, I think one of the reasons why she's included right at the very start here and explained in this way is because later, Adonijah, who's a little chancer, will one day make a play for the king, for the crown, based on taking one of the king's wives. I think that's the main reason. Even though it sounds a bit odd, but the author has set the scene, and against this backdrop, you have Adonijah coming on the scene immediately saying, King me, King me. Adonijah is someone who exalts himself. You see that in verse 5. Adonijah, whose mother was Haggai, who was another one of David's wives, it's another question, put himself forward and said, I will be king. By the way, see when you read the Old Testament and you see kings like David and Solomon with these lots and lots of wives, don't think that the Lord permitted it. He had stated explicitly in Deuteronomy 17 that this is what they should not do. Okay, that was a, a mild rant. Not at you, sorry. Um, but by the sounds of things, this whole self-exaltation, king me of this guy Adonijah, it's not new. Verse 6 suggests that the desire for this guy to be in the spotlight has been there, always there, and never dealt with. That's what, there's an indictment on King David here, isn't there? So when the school photo came out, he's probably looking for his own face first, whether he liked it or not, depending on whether he was smiling or cross-eyed, I don't know. When anyone told him a story, he tried hard to think of a better story. When somebody else was chosen above him, he probably sulked. You know, nobody likes that kind of self-centeredness, but nobody dealt with it in this boy, especially David. Verse 6 says his dad never rebuked him or asked, why did you behave the way you do? Spare the rod, spoil the child. Discipline is, of course, important, parents. But Adonijah exalted himself and says, King me. How do you go about it? Well, he, he did what kings would do in those days, or pretenders to the throne would do. He organizes his own entourage with chariots and horses. You know, you want to make a big entrance, so I'm going to have 50 Chippendales to run ahead of me, you know, showing off the might of my kingship. By striding on ahead of me, he was making a big statement in that way. He puts on his own coronation ceremony and feast. He uses religious, religious rituals to big himself up. Hundreds of sheep, 
hundreds of cattle, sacrifice them all, let's barbecue them all, let's all celebrate. He gathers around him all the most influential people, most of them, most influential people in the kingdom of Israel, because it's important to have friends in high places whenever you're trying to be a king and act like a king. And he's invited Joab, of course, a military hard man who had, you know, he had, he had fought with David before. Um, though he's a wee bit of a chanter as well. Abiathar, a priest who helped David when Saul was trying to kill him, but he's been disgraced since. Lots of other princes, so other, some of Solomon's brothers and royal officials, they've given them support. Why? Why give support to a pretender? Well, again, think of the contrasts. He is the one who is the next, born, the next one really in line when you're working down the firstborn rank, okay? In terms of... Um, sequence of birth. But that's not the way God was working. God had promised that Solomon would be the king. But he, Adonijah, recognizes that he effectively should be next in line and also that the king is ailing. He's old and cold. So he's going to make a power play because he wants to be first. He has a lust for power. We saw who was on the guest list there. But did you notice who was not on the guest list? Verses 8 and 10 tell us that he didn't invite really the three most important people in the kingdom. The three men who held God-given spiritual authority in Israel, the prophet, the priest, and the king. He didn't invite Nathan, the prophet, who declared God's word. He didn't invite the priest, Zadok, the one who represented sinners before God and offered sacrifices for sin. He didn't invite the king, Solomon, the one God had actually appointed to have authority in that kingdom. And in all of that, Adonijah exalted himself. Now think for a second. You're not Adonijah, right? No one, you know, Queen Elizabeth is not, she may be old and cold, I don't know. But none of us are vying for her throne. No one's going to pretend to that. But in every sphere of life, as I mentioned in the introduction, we seek to king ourselves in various ways by rebellion against the one who is the true king. We want to live however we want to live, do what we want, get what we want, whenever we want. In what ways do you see this in yourself? In what way do you see Adonijah's proud self-exaltation in your own life? In whatever way we see it, if we're trying to live according to our own rules, disregarding God in the process, then we are sinning. We're exercising this proud self-exaltation that Adonijah offered. And in all of those scenarios, we are seeing our lust for power and our defiance of the one who actually now holds all three offices of prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. Jesus, the true prophet, who came to deliver the message of truth and grace and forgiveness for sin. Jesus, the true high priest who represented us before God when he offered himself on the cross as a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And Jesus, who is the true king, who reigns with total authority as King of kings and Lord of lords, we are 
called to submit to his rule and his authority. And he calls us to live in a different way. He calls us to be servants, to follow his example, the kind of example we saw earlier in the service in our reading from Philippians 2. Uh, humble servant-heartedness is what defines him and it ought to define us. Putting other people first is what defines him and it ought to define how we live. So instead of pursuing our own self-interest, our Adonijah-like tendencies, we are to seek to serve others and glorify Jesus in the process. Is that how we live our lives? I think as we'll see shortly, our level of obedience is really an indicator of our love for the Lord God, an indicator of our love for him. So it could very well be that our disobedience is an indicator of a lack of love for God. And a heart that is divided, divided will head towards tragedy unless we repent and trust in his grace. Maybe you're here tonight, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You know, you've never found yourself saying that you love Jesus. You would never say you've come to know the unbelievable relief of knowing what it means to be forgiven of your sin and having, great, uh, having shame and guilt removed. I mean, the world, the world would have us believe that we are the masters of our own fate and the captains of our own souls. But the Bible teaches us clearly that there is one ruler and he is God. And as, cre as his created subjects, we're accountable to him, but we rebel. He's the prophet. Can I encourage you to listen to him through his word? He's spoken, after all, revealed himself, and good news through it. He's the priest. Can I encourage you to trust him for forgiveness? He died for sin, so that even our rebellion and self-centeredness might be forgiven. He's the king calls on us to love and obey him so that in our lives we say not we don't say crown me or king me we say king him you can talk to the person who brought you talk to one of the prayer team who'll be at the front after the service uh, talk to me afterwards I'll be at the door uh, after the service is over ask us questions about these things come to life explored which starts in a couple of weeks' time, it would be a great thing to consider. Well, King Him is really what we see in the rest of this uh, passage. If you look with me, and we're just glancing at this from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, uh, Adonijah's self-coronation, of course, is in full swing. The only person who does something about it is David. It's funny, isn't it, that he's old and cold, unroused by a beautiful woman lying in his bed, and yet rousable when it comes to the fact that God's plan and purposes for his son to sit on the throne stirs him. He comes alive. He's concerned still for the glory of God's name and the righteous rule of this kingdom that God has established. And Nathan and Bathsheba, the wife and his wife and Solomon's mother, inform the king about what's happening. And Bathsheba in verse 20 of chapter 1 says, All Israel's eyes are on you. So what does he do? He appoints Solomon as the king. God had already promised David that Solomon would be king. I'll make reference to that in the weeks to come, so that's fine. We can just jump over that bit just now. 
But he does that. He commands the priest and the prophet to do this. Everywhere rejoices. The ground shakes because of it. And Adonijah and his guests, well, that's bad news for them, and they start to scatter. Oh, thanks for the party. It's lovely to be here. Really, really nice. But uh, cheerio, away they go, in fear of their lives. And the narrative then centers on what comes next, which is David's charge to Solomon in 1 Kings 2, 1 to 4. Now, I said at the start, you've got to look for structure. What you've got is a lot of narrative before and after. And sometimes the main point of an Old Testament narrative passage is smack dab in the middle. And that's the case here. In verses 1 to 4, you have this very, very important charge. It sounds a lot like charges that we've heard in the Bible already, as the video referenced earlier. It sounds a lot like what Moses would say to Joshua. It sounds a lot like what Joshua would pass on to the people. It sounds a lot about the kind of thing that every king was supposed to hear. And David charges him in various ways. And essentially, it is a charge to King Solomon, to King the Lord God, to honor and obey his authority. You see, Solomon might be appointed king over Israel, but he's a vice-regent, really. The one who is the true king over all is the Lord God himself. And that's what David emphasizes, especially in verses 1 to 4. Obey the Lord, he says. Be strong and act like a man. What does David want him to do? I mean, train to be the world's strongest man, drag trucks with your teeth or grow a beard? No. He says, observe what the Lord your God requires. Use your eyes, Solomon. Read the book, Solomon. Familiarize with the Lord and the law and what's required of you. It reveals who he is in his holiness. It reveals who you are in your sinfulness. And it makes you come in humble repentance that he forgives you for all of your unholiness and works through you despite who you are. He encourages him to see that. Actually, as you'll see, it was one of the requirements of any king that one of the first things that they did when they entered the office of king was to take the first five books of the Bible and write it out for themselves on a scroll. And then spend, it was instructed of them in the law, every day read it and regurgitate it. Pour over it again and again and again. Meditate over it day and night. It's kind of like Psalm 1 again, isn't it? Why? Because he desires your heart. The Lord God desired Solomon's heart in the same way he did of David's. He desires his love and rightly his praise. David says, don't just obey him, walk in obedience to him. Obedience, of course, is the expression of love. If we love God and love his word, we'll love to live it out. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Now, sometimes I think we either forget about obedience or get tied up in knots when we think about it, and I'm concerned about that. God expects obedience from us. He expects us to take his instruction, imperatives, etc., very, very seriously. Now, of course, there's grace for when we fall, but that grace is not a license for kind of passivity or disobedience. No. God commands obedience, of course. Let me be clear, not as a means of salvation. No, our obedience instead is the fruit of the salvation that we already enjoy. But obedience matters. If you love me, Jesus says, you will obey what I command. And that's what David is saying to Solomon. Obey. Don't just know it. Obey it. 
And then he says, keep his decrees, commands, laws, and regulations. Now, keeping it here means don't just obey it. Don't just think about it and meditate on it. Guard it, protect it, and honor it. Don't let yourself or anyone else reduce its value, denigrate its importance, or denounce its authority. Uphold it in your own life, in your family's life, in your nation's life, or in our case, the church family's life. Are these our priorities? Do we find ourselves kinging the Lord God in these ways by observing his decrees, listening to his commands, loving his words and obeying it? Are our lives dyed with the word of God? They ought to be because the Lord God promises blessing for us when we do. In the same way that blessing is offered in this covenantal charge that David makes to Solomon, saying that there'll be reward in it. He'll prosper greatly. Obedience is, of course, rewarded. And I sometimes think that we forget about the blessing that comes through obedience. And above all, we see in here that the Lord proves himself faithful to his promise. And he says, David says, if your descendants watch how they live and walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you'll never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Now, David stresses the way Solomon should walk is wholehearted. That doesn't mean he needs to live a perfect life, but it does mean that his love for the Lord and zeal for his glory should be kept front and center. And that's, that's why we see Solomon at the start, as we go through the start of this series, we'll see him do well in lots of ways. We'll be like, yes, Solomon. You know, anyone following the, the storyline of the Bible might just be like, oh, is Solomon the forever king? Is this the one we've been waiting for? I mean, blessing descends on this man, as we'll see, in exceptional ways, unlike, more than David, and unlike any other king who will come after him. Is this the guy? No. His love for the Lord will fade showing us again and again that though we may hold people in high regards in the Old Testament, these so-called heroes of the faith, ultimately they're all human. They fail, they sin, but they are still signs. They are still foreshadowing. They are still pointing forward to the new and better David, the new and better Solomon, the one true king who is Jesus Christ, who will love perfectly, who obeyed perfectly in this life, who rules in love, and who one day will usher in the final kingdom that is, well, definitively joy and peace in the new heaven and new earth. Now, David does end this section. Before I say that, does that describe how we are living? Is our love for the Lord evident in our desire to read his word, to help each other a lot? Because we need each other's help in this, to walk in obedience. We really need each other's help when we stumble and fall, because then we fall into these dark thoughts of, oh, how could God actually love me? Man alive, I failed again for the 21st time, and it's... Uh, it's only the 8th of January. Isn't it in those moments that you need someone to come alongside you and say, hey, let's think about this. Have you sinned? 
You know, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. His forgiveness and his cleansing is there if you just take it. Have faith, brother. Have faith, sister. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who made atonement for our sin and not only for ours, but the sins of the world. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. I need people like you to come alongside me and remind me of the gospel when I feel despair at my sin. You need people like me to do the same. We need each other to do this regularly. And remember the joys of the gospel and be encouraged all the more. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's take the strength that he has given us by his spirit and walk in his ways and show our love for Jesus. Has he not loved us and shown it in the most amazing ways already? And of course, David ends this very Bible-centered charge with something that really doesn't sit very well with us. He's not only said, obey the Lord and keep his ways, he said, deal with those who don't, essentially. And I think at first this can look like David is looking for revenge on his enemies. Maybe he is. Maybe it's just an honest account of the fact that actually in his sinfulness, he really wants a lot of people dead. Maybe there's more of a cultural thing going on where actually it was the pattern Strangely, in those cultures back then, it had been for hundreds of years before David came and Solomon came on the scene, that whenever a new king came to the throne, the old king and all of his family would be purged. They'd be killed. In order to ensure that there was no prospect of a resurrected threat to the current king's reign. David passes on this warning. About the kind of people, actually, who by their love for themselves can find themselves acting against the Lord and King and not actually caring about it. Like Adonijah, who makes another play for the crown by asking for David's hot water bottle wife. Like Joab, Abiathar, and Shimei, each of whom in their own way disobey the king's authority. And in doing so, actually defy God. That's what the narrative teaches. And the result is, of course, that the kingdom, of, the kingdom is established in Solomon's heart. And we sometimes forget, we, we struggle with this, we sometimes forget actually just how black and white God is with sin. Jesus himself said of sin that it was so serious that we should deal decisively with it. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He's speaking metaphorically to say, deal drastically with this. If anyone causes this, anyone else to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the sea. Deal drastically with sin. And in the end, he is the king who will return in judgment to deal decisively with the evil of those who refuse his rule and rebel against his authority. And again, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, that's a humble but a serious warning, one that can't be ignored. I would not be speaking to you with any kind of integrity if I tried to hide that from you. But it's another reason why people like us want to appeal to you to believe the gospel and not face that. 
Do not cower in fear when he returns, but rejoice and be glad. You can be made right with him again by believing in the cross that forgiveness of sin is won there and new life is found in the name of Jesus. Well, Solomon, like his father before him, would fail in lots of ways. He nor David could keep the law perfectly. The kingdom would descend into the hands of evil, yet God would keep his promise to preserve the kingdom and eventually one from David's line, one from Solomon's line would walk in perfect obedience. Jesus, who lived the life we could never live, died the death we should have died, rose again and ascended to show that he reigns, which is why that we in our lives should not be saying, King me, but always King him. Let's pray together. Our Father, please help us to digest what we have dealt with really at a dash tonight. Help us to think these things through, to look and search our own hearts for this proud self-exaltation where we say, king me, crown me, where we try and live in disobedience and rebellion against your authority. Help us to see that blessing and joy and peace and satisfaction is found in obedience to you. And may we live in honor of your law and your words and especially of your King, Jesus Christ. And in his name we ask it. Amen.